By 1860, the Second Opium War had reached its crescendo. It had begun when Britain realized it had fallen into a trade deficit with China. To balance things out, the English turned to dealing drugs, flooding the Chinese market with opium from growers in India. China's imperial leadership, wary of a growing drug problem among its people, launched a just-say to drugs campaign. But the British drug cartel wasn't having any. British and French soldiers who, let's face it, suck at subtle, stormed the Imperial Summer Palace five miles north of the Forbidden City. On orders from their commanding officer, Lord Elgin, soldiers looted a million and a half works of art and treasure. Most were bound for British museums, palaces, galleries, and private collections. Five of them were bound for British kennels. Upon storming the palace, British soldiers found the body of the emperor's aunt, who took her own life on hearing their approach. Surrounding her were five small dogs unlike any canine known in Britain. This was likely the first time Western eyes ever beheld a Pekingese, the lion dog. The breed was ancient. Some traditions dated back to the Buddha. In her book Pekingese, Hermione Warner Hill explains the tradition that the Buddha had a lion as his constant companion and that China's emperors were regarded by their subjects as Buddha. There being no lions in China, it is said the priests convinced emperors to accept lion dogs, the Pekingese, as a proxy for the real thing. The dogs were housed in a marble pavilion on silk cushions and attended by eunuchs. According to writings, the Dowager Empress encouraged the dogs to be fed shark fins and curlew livers and the breasts of quails, also the milk of antelopes that pasture in imperial parks. The dogs were regarded as sacred to the point where removing one from the palace could be considered a capital offense. When the British soldiers came calling, at least 30 dogs were found dead killed by their imperial owners, lest they fall into the hands of what they called the White Devil. The five remaining dogs were gathered up and shipped back to England, where four found homes with aristocrats. The fifth dog was presented to Queen Victoria, who called her Looty, one of the more on-the-nose names in all of dogdom. Following the Queen's lead, Western muckety-mucks embraced the Pekingese. AKC would recognize the breed in 1906. The famous British actress Beatrice Campbell is said to have tried to sneak a Pekingese through customs in the upper part of her cape. Everything was going splendidly, she later remarked, until my bosoms barked. Other such stories were darker. It is said that one gentleman procured two Pekingese. Despite warnings, he would never get them out of the country. So he made a swap, putting the dogs in his valise and his clothes in a dog basket. When he boarded his ship, he found that the basket had been stabbed through and through, a fate undoubtedly intended for the dogs. What their high-rent humans quickly discovered was the breed's tendency to form a strong bond with their favorite human, tempered by a personality best described as, uh, opinionated. In time, something happened that neither the Imperials of China nor Great Britain saw coming. 
Pekingese found their way outside the iron gates of high society and into middle-class homes. <gasps> and there goes the neighborhood. And they're also among the great unwashed. Pekingese have thrived with nary a shark's fin or curlew liver in sight. And that's good news for so many breeds of dog in the toy group, many of whom were once seen as symbols of the royalty and aristocracy who embraced them. With revolutions, wars, and palace coups, that guilt by association often proved fatal. I'm Bud Bacone. Please remain seated. There's no need to curtsy or bow as we meet the characters, the companions, the clowns, and the survivors, dogs of the toy group. There have been dogs as long as there have been people. Cookies! This dog was going places. Fast. The American Kennel Club. Kennel Club. Take your dog down and back for me, please. Down and Back. Stories from the AKC Archives. This is the show for you. With Bud Bacone. This puppy has potential. To begin at the beginning, the Chihuahua wasn't called the Chihuahua. The breed can be traced back at least as far as the Aztecs, who didn't call themselves Aztecs, and was regarded as one of the greatest treasures of Montezuma, whose name wasn't exactly Montezuma. For those following at home, the Aztecs called themselves the Mexica. Montezuma's name is actually something closer to Matacuzoma. And today's Chihuahua is believed to derive from a now-extinct breed called the Techichi. It's not too late to pick up a program in the foyer. A thousand years ago, the Techichi were prized by the Toltec people of what is now central Mexico. Techichi were hunters and companions. Because they were thought to possess supernatural powers, they were often sacrificed in order to guide their deceased owner to the underworld. It's believed that the Toltecs were conquered by, among others, the Aztecs, who refined the breed into a smaller, lighter dog. They were coveted by nobility, who may have kept large packs of them. And again, it was their lot to be sacrificed or cremated to help guide a human to the afterlife. The Aztecs made good use of the next four centuries, introducing the world to chewing gum, popcorn, and mandatory universal education. Ah, but then, in about 1519... Spain's conquistadors arrived with an insatiable appetite for plunder and woefully lacking in diplomatic skills. Some historians suggest they also had an appetite for the sacred dogs who, with the Aztecs, all but disappeared. Before that happened, though, some archaeologists now believe that in an act of gastronomic karma, the Aztecs might have used hapless conquistadors as a food source. Three and a half centuries later, in 1888, James Watson, journalist, author, and a pioneer dog breeder, was passing through El Paso, Texas. There, for $3, he purchased a tiny dog with an outsized personality. It was unlike anything he'd seen. This was the direct descendant of the sacred dog. When the Aztecs fell, the tiny canines survived in smaller villages and towns, and now they had a name, Chihuahua. 
from the border state where the breed thrived. A canine Napoleon, they suffer no lack of confidence and won't shrink from the heady responsibility of ruling any household. Now, Watson was fascinated by the dog and set about popularizing the breed, which AKC recognized in 1904. Since ancient times, many breeds within the toy group have thrived as beloved companions and just as often as a gotta-have fashion accessory. Among the richest households of the ancient Mediterranean, there was but one breed for the job. In ancient Rome, no self-respecting patrician woman would be caught dead without one vital four-legged fashion accessory up her sleeve. Literally. Meet the Maltese. In those days when the Bible was still a work in progress, the Maltese was wildly popular among the upper crust throughout the Mediterranean. How, you ask, did their popularity spread to so many different countries? Yep, the Phoenicians. As early as 1500 BC, Phoenician traders provided the shishiest items for the beautiful people. Textiles, exotic woods, glassware, precious metals, incense, papyrus, and it's six to five in Pickham that they also introduced a charming, playful lapdog to the islands of Malta. If you consider its location, about 100 miles south of Sicily, and consider the wealth and might of countries around the Mediterranean, you understand why Malta was at the hub of high-end trade back then. It was the Harrods, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Neiman Marcus of the day. And the dog? Just one look at that punum, and there's little question why the Maltese has been a favorite for 28 centuries and counting. Now, can't you just hear those ancient voices crying out, Hey, bud, this would be a perfect time for an AKC breed biography. They didn't agree on much, but on this, the Greeks, Carthaginians, Romans, Arabs, and Normans were unanimous. They were nuts about the Maltese. With their show-stopping floor-length white coat, Maltese are playful, charming, and adaptable toy companions. Maltese weigh less than seven pounds. With a compact body moving with a smooth and effortless gait, the overall picture depicts free-flowing elegance and balance. The irresistible Maltese face, with its big dark eyes and black gumdrop nose, can conquer the most jaded sensibility. Greeks of the 4th and 5th centuries BC were fascinated by the Maltese's geometric beauty, immortalizing it on Golden Age ceramics. Aristotle called it perfectly proportioned, notwithstanding its diminutive stature. Yet, it was the Romans, isn't it always, who made the Maltese a fashion statement. Even the hyper-dysfunctional Emperor Claudius succumbed to their charms. Beyond their aristocratic bearing, Maltese make alert watchdogs, fearless in a, a charming toy dog way. On the agility course, they're game little athletes. Maltese are low-shedding, long-lived, and happy to make new friends of all ages. Sometimes stubborn and willful, they respond well to rewards-based training. Then, about 15 centuries ago, it happened. Rome fell. As did the other great Mediterranean civilizations. Yet, even without so many high-society laps to sit on, the Maltese survived. 
Through Europe's dark ages, it was Chinese breeders who rescued the Maltese from extinction, crossing them with their native toy breeds. They eventually exported a more refined Maltese back to Europe. Through the centuries, it remained a favorite. At the very first Westminster show in 1877, the breed was exhibited as the Maltese Lion Dog. It's the happy fate of the Maltese that the Phoenicians spread them throughout so many different countries. Had it been branded as a Roman or a Greek dog, it might have suffered the same fate as those ancient civilizations. Others weren't so lucky. Just ask the beloved toy breeds of revolutionary France. You're listening to Down and Back, stories from the AKC archives. On a crisp October day, shortly after noon, Marie Antoinette, the deposed Queen of France, approached the guillotine at the Place de la Concorde in Paris. Her signature locks had been cut short, and she wore a simple white dress. There's an enduring story that she walked onto the platform and accidentally stepped on the foot of her executioner, whispering to him, Pardon me, monsieur. I didn't mean to. Her love for her dogs has inspired at least two legends. One, that she strode to the platform, clutching a favorite canine on her arm. Another, that during her final days, her beloved Papillon Thisbe stood vigil outside her prison. The Papillon is an upbeat, athletic member of the toy group, measuring 8 to 11 inches at the shoulder, and distinguished by its large wing-shaped ears, hence the name, which means butterfly in French. The breed dates back to the Renaissance when existing toy breeds were crossed with spaniels. In those days, it was trendy to breed miniature versions of favorite breeds. Papillon were adored by European royalty and captured in paintings by Rubens, Rembrandt, Goya, and Toulouse-Lautrec. This is also a breed with skills, gifted at agility and ridding a household of small rodents. But... French revolutionaries, the Papillon was synonymous with the French court they so despised. The breed and other purebreds were deemed guilty by association, hunted, and killed. According to Scuttlebutt, tiny guillotines were fashioned for toy canines left behind when their well-to-do humans fled or were captured. Nothing like a storm at sea to sort out one's priorities. Take King James II of England and his devotion to his dogs. One of those probably apocryphal but too much fun to ignore moments. On learning that his dogs and his son were caught in a storm at sea, his majesty exclaimed, Save the dogs! Uh, and the Duke of Monmouth. To this day, it would seem royal family dysfunction stops at the kennel door. The dogs His Majesty referred to were King Charles Spaniels, a breed popularized four centuries ago and named in honor of James's brother and predecessor to the throne, Charles II. They came about their love of these toy Spaniels honestly. Dearest Papa, Charles I, made no secret of his affection for them, in particular, a black and tan variety. The famous diarist of the time, Samuel Pepys, lamented that the king preferred playing with his dogs to paying attention to meetings of his ministers. 
All I observe there is the silliness of the king playing with his dog all the while and not minding the business. Others complain that the king was fond of having his toy spaniels wander the palace at will, even in his bedchamber. But he rarely bothered to take them outside to make number one. The palace in time smelled a little ripe. Skipping ahead, there's a civil war. Charles I is beheaded. Eleven years later, his son, Charles II, is restored to the monarchy. And he too loved the toy spaniels, later named in his honor. The King Charles Spaniel, combining the gentle attentiveness of a toy breed with the verve and athleticism of a sporting spaniel, had everything going for it, except its name. When the House of Stuart fell, associating with a dog named for King Charles became a career-limiting move. With the reign of Victoria two centuries later, the King Charles Spaniel was again in vogue. Early in the 1800s, a popular red and white line was bred at Blenheim Palace by the Marlborough family, who themselves would later beget Winston Churchill. Then, later that same century, it happened. The Asian influences that washed over Victorian England, curries, oriental smoking jackets and opium dens gave sway also to breeders of canines. Some began crossing the King Charles Spaniel with Asian toy breeds, probably pugs and Japanese chin, to produce what Americans know today as the English toy Spaniel. The Brits stuck with the name King Charles. The new style toy Spaniel had a domed skull and a flatter face than those of Charles's time. Before long, this type came to dominate, and the traditional toy Spaniel of the Restoration was rendered nearly extinct. But not forgotten. Certainly not at least by Mr. Roswell Eldridge Esquire, a rags-to-riches American with a streak of Anglophile. He loved to visit England and frequently joined the West Somerset Hunt, Today, he would personify donor porn to a PBS fundraiser. A member of America's Westminster Kennel Club, Eldridge once visited Britain's fabled Crufts Dog Show and found himself looking for the King Charles Spaniels he'd seen depicted in 17th century art. And there they were, gone. Instead, he found the flat-faced Victorian version, These weren't the same canines in the portrait of Caroline, Duchess of Marlborough by Sir Joshua Reynolds, and the three children of King Charles by Van Dyke. The Victorian version? These weren't your parents' King Charles Spaniels. So, in the Cruff schedule for 1926, he took out a small ad. Blenheim Spaniels of the old type, as shown in pictures of King Charles II's dime. The first prizes are given by Roswell Eldridge Esquire of New York and will be continued for five years. First prize, 25 pounds. 25 pounds cash money, about 2,200 U.S. dollars today, to breeders who can replicate the toy breed of King Charles's time. Keen breeders, or more properly the dogs, went to work recreating the old-style spaniel. To distinguish itself from the Victorian King Charles breed, it took on the name Cavalier, a nickname for backers of King Charles I during England's Civil War. 
In 2021, the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel ranked number 15 on AKC's list of most popular breeds. The Victorian version of the breed still thrives, of course, known in America today as the English Toy Spaniel, and in Britain as simply the King Charles Spaniel. You can spin the wheel to almost any era, almost any civilization, and you'll find favorite toy breeds in the corridors of power and influence. Ooh, back to China and the pug. Another dog with a 2,000-year history. Like the Pekingese and the Shih Tzu, the pug was developed and refined in the flat-faced toy dog tradition and kept as pets of the emperor, his family, and members of the imperial court. On rare occasions, an outsider might obtain a pug as a gift. Everyone else, thanks for playing, good night, and drive carefully. That all changed in the 1500s with Dutch traders. When a few pugs were smuggled or forced out of China, they became the toast of Europe, serving as the mascot of Holland's House of Orange. A pug even saved the life of its prince by barking to warn him as Spanish troops approached. When William and Mary of Orange crossed the channel to rule England, their pugs became a favorite among the British. You can measure the pug's popularity by the number of names the breed has taken on through different eras and countries. In China, it's the Low Sea. To the Finns, it's the Mopsy. The Spanish called it the Doggio, while the Dutch called them Mophuns. As for the name pug, a going theory is that it's taken from the Latin word pugnus, meaning fist, presumably because a pug's face resembles to some a clenched fist. Its Latin motto could easily be multum in parvo, or a lot in a little. Pugs love to love and be loved in return. They come in three colors, silver or apricot fawn with a black face mask, or all black. The pug face can convey human-like expressions of surprise, happiness, and curiosity that have delighted owners for centuries. Pugs are happy in the city or country with kids or older folks as an only pet or in a pack, which, fun fact, is called a grumble of pugs. Over and over, the lot of these wonderful toy breeds soared and plummeted with kings and queens, the movers and shakers. Only in the last century or so has that cycle been broken. Charles I and II wouldn't recognize the world of Charles III. You see it every day all around you. Not just Cavaliers, Pugs, and Maltese, but Italian Greyhounds, Silky Terriers, Yorkies and Pomeranians loved and cared for in homes of commoners like you and me. Over the past century or so, the Tory group has been democratized in their own way, making every man and woman a king, and queen, and empress, duke, and duchess, even if they don't know which fork to use at dinner. Oh, and and, and a word to the wise. If you see a Pekingese playing in the park, don't tell them about curlew livers and antelope milk. That'll be our secret. Down and Back, stories from the AKC Archives. Visit akc.org for more on all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow AKC on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at American Kennel Club. 
on Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers. And let us know what you thought of the show. And let us know what you thought of the show. If you're new around here, subscribe with your favorite podcast provider to catch up on this season and past episodes. Founded in 1884, the American Kennel Club is the recognized and trusted expert in breeds, health, and training. We advocate for responsible dog ownership and are dedicated to advancing dog sports. Research for Down and Back is provided by the AKC Library and Archives, the only national repository dedicated to the sport and enjoyment of the purebred dog. Learn more about the collections at akc.org library. There's always a wise guy.